This is the European Tours Life on Tour podcast presented by Hilton. Hello there and a very warm welcome to the second season of Life on Tour presented by Hilton, a podcast where we talk to the great and good of the European Tour but also of the world game. I'm Andrew Cotter and our first guest uh, to start the second season where well, we've gone big. Um, maybe I should just let you guess uh, faithful podcast listeners where we are or who we're speaking to because we are, well I'll tell you, we're in Woburn so that probably gives you a clue that our first guest is the man of many cars, many victories worldwide. We're in his own room here, the Ian Poulter room at Woburn. Welcome to you, Ian Poulter. Thank you. <laughs> so it's a long intro and a very short thank you. Um, <laughs> when, you when you come to Woburn, I mean, there are many pictures of many great golfers around here, but uh, your mark is certainly on this place. I mean, how long has this sort of been home for you now, this, this club? Because it feels like home for you. It is home from home. The affiliation's been 17 years. So I was uh, assistant pro just down the road in Leighton Buzzard. So that's probably three, four miles away. And uh, 2002 was when uh, the connection was made to come over and be touring professional. Obviously, we were living uh, in and around the Milton Keynes area. And obviously, three great golf courses, short game facility, uh, great ranges. It made you know perfect sense to be able to come here spend a bit of time, practice. And then obviously we moved to the States in kind of uh, 10 years ago now. It's like 2008-ish, yeah. uh, full-time. But yeah, coming here every summer with the kids uh, is fantastic. Uh, right. I mean, we are. Uh, this podcast is called Life on Tour because there is a sort of, let's say, a dig into the life of the, the people involved. So we want to go back to the, the start, near enough the start. So when did you first pick up a club? How old were you? And, and, and where did you grow up? So I grew up in a... I was born in Hitchin, Hertfordshire, lived in Stevenage. And my first experience on a golf course, I was about five. My dad chopped a club down for me, took the weight out of the bottom. It was an old uh, laminated kind of two-wood slash three-wood. He dug out the weight at the bottom, he cut the shaft down, he taped up the end of the shaft with pipe tape, and that was the club I'd swing in the garden. Mm. My first shot on a golf course was Stevenage Golf Course, par three downhill, 11th hole, and uh, there was a group on the green. It was about 120 yards, and my dad said, go on, just hit one, it'll be fine, not expecting me really to make much of a contact and decided to pitch it right in the middle of the group in front. Give me a clip round the ear and sent me down to apologise. <laughs> it's not my fault, it was your fault, you told <laughs> me to. Amazing the detail you can remember your first shot. Can you remember being enjoying the game from uh, an early age? I think children enjoy it if they can do it, if they, if they can play it well. I didn't enjoy the, the next three minutes having to walk down to apologise. I remember walking back up, they all crying my eyes out. But, you know, from, from that point, you know, spending time with my dad and my brother on the golf course at weekends it was always great fun. So to have that sport married in with playing football at the same time uh, was great. So it wasn't just one sport, one you know, one single-minded vision. It was play football, play a bit of golf as well, and then um, you know, see how we see how we go. You mentioned your brother, is that Danny, your Danny, older brother, yeah. and he was a he was a good player. Is you, you, I think you said somewhere that he had more. You thought that he could have been better than you? Yeah, I mean, I think I think he definitely could have made it. Um, you know, he played golf two years. You know, he's two years older, so therefore, you know, the older younger brother syndrome where older brother's obviously a lot better for a period of time and then the younger brother 
you know, kind of uh, catches up and then, you know, I finally took over. But, you know, he had tried to get on tour. He went to tour school. He played Sunshine Talk, a couple of events. But unfortunately for him, he never he never quite made it. Is he similar to you? I mean, because you, people talk about you, you know, you have that confidence and the belief, which is a large part of what you need to make it on tour, make it as a player. Would he maybe not have had that same self-belief? I'm not... Yeah, I mean, I we're different. Um, and I feel that when he perhaps looks back, he might, you know, he, he might regret and sit back and reflect and say, "I probably could have worked a bit harder." Mm. Um, and that's, you know, that that's a shame. Yeah. It's a shame because I think he's, you know, he's, he 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 missed his window. You're listening to Life on Tour, but Danny Poulter, uh, <laughs> yeah, actually mentioned football there because football. Were you keener on football when you were growing up than golf? Uh, certainly in the sort of early stages of. of childhood and that was your first love almost yeah football football was definitely like the one I wanted to do I wanted to I wanted to be a premiership player I wanted to you know play football score goals you know I played every weekend I played after school you know every opportunity I, play, you know, I had trials when I was 14 15 with Spurs Unfortunately, yeah, that didn't last long. So <laughs> How did that, that come about then? As a, is that just whoever offers it you the was, trials? It was, yeah, it was, a, it was a, you know, you get asked to go to a trial, and you know, I played for my for, for my regular club, and obviously, there's there's people out there watching. One of my mates did get through, and I was one of the many, many, many kids in a uh, out of the hundreds that were there that just were told you're not good enough. We talk about strength and depth in golf, but football must be even more so. The disappointment, you know, the pe- because everybody has a dream that they can make it, but I don't think people are prepared for disappointment, which is more realistic that you're going to be one of those not chosen. I don't remember an awful lot about it, to be honest. It was a fact of, you know, there's there's a trial, you're going to go along to this place, you're going to, what I thought was play football, but it wasn't. It was just a very brief, you know, little kick around, and before you know it, it was, no, on to the next one, yeah. you're... You're no good, so it was like lambs to slaughter, really. Yeah. Yeah, you, I can see you as a what, you're a striker. Uh, well, I, I was to begin with, and I, I got moved back to centre half. Oh, okay, okay. So then the golf thing uh, took over. I presume as you became better and better as well, you thought that this might be potentially a career for you. It took over the day someone told me I wasn't good enough. So at the golf. second I was told, no, I was told I wasn't good enough at football. Oh, that right. was it. It was like the mindset was okay. Uh, well, if I can't if I can't play football, then I, I need to play another sport. There was nothing at school I enjoyed doing. It was always going to be sport for you. Yeah. So it was just a case of right. If it can't be football, it was either that or flipping burgers. Or <laughs> yeah. I mean, there really wasn't anything else. I mean, I was I enjoyed graphic design. I enjoyed a bit of art at school. Nothing else floated my boat at all. So how did you get into it then? Chessfield Downs is that the course that you? Chessfield Downs was the closest course to me. I obviously. Played at Stevenage, Chessfield Downs opened in 1991. 1990 official open, I think, was 91. So, you know, we often went up there to hit golf balls. The driving range was great. Nick Faldo came to open it, which I remember. And, you know, I, at the time, 91, uh, you know, I was 15. So it was about the time where I was ready to get myself out of school and earn some money. You know, I was already working on a market store from the age of 11, uh, I needed some cash. I needed to be able, you know, buy my own things and buy a bike and be able to get about. So, you know, fifteen. I wanted Danny, my brother, got a job at the golf course, mm. and I just wanted to follow, you know, and, and do what he was doing. So I mm. went into full time employment literally. At the end, by 
just before I was 16. They must have had some money, Chesterfield Downs, if they're getting Nick Faldo for their opening in 1990, early 90s. Yeah, I don't know what they paid, but it would have been, uh, it definitely would have been a, yeah, a couple of bucks, I would think. <laughs> anyway, so you <laughs> took on a job as an assistant there, as a sort of golf golf manager. and I just worked, and I worked in the shop. And you're so an amateur still at this amateur point? I was amateur, I played off, so that would have been 15, I wouldn't have been very good, it might have been 10, 11 at the time. And I worked on my game over the next two-year period until I got to 17 and I got my handicap down to four. Right. Now, I've heard, uh, because people know that you turned pro off four because you're sort of used as an example of you don't have to be a teenage prodigy to make it in the game. You turned pro off four, but I've heard a couple of stories that one of the reasons you were only off four was because it cost you a green fee or you were being charged a green fee so you didn't play in that many competitions to get your handicap down lower because you were being charged a green fee every time you wanted to play in a competition. Is the truth in that? Exactly right. I played a number of medals, you know, at the weekend uh, prior to there being a different shop manager and at 17 I got down to four over the next two-year period where I was, you know, full-time job working not as an assistant but obviously working in the shop uh, opening the shop up selling clubs and um, doing what you know a normal full, full-time employed shop assistant would do but then we was being charged or asked if you know you play a competition you, you need to pay a green fee well at the time if you're if you're earning 120 pounds a week or 130 pound a week and you're going to pay, you know, over ten percent of your weekly salary to play one round of golf. Then uh, I chose not to, yeah. but I just chose to hit balls instead. So I went to the driving range, which was free golf balls, and I would hit balls for that period of time before work and after work. And um, in that two-year window between seventeen and nineteen, there was, you know, just a, a vast improvement. Yeah. I would say from um, from all of the practice I did. Yeah. I was allowed to play golf outside of work hours, uh, but if it was competition, I needed to pay green fee. Is there any truth that you had to alter your hand to get to four, you had to do a bit of magic and manipulation? Because people might not know, to be a pro, to become, or at least to start the process of becoming a pro, you have to be off four. There was no manipulation. I think um, <laughs> I think the right word, I mean, I was off four, and you can turn assistant pro off four. Hmm. So I just hadn't technically handed a card in for two years. So um, I was looking after the handicaps at the golf club at the time. <laughs> so my handicap certificate was um, signed. signed by me. <laughs> Might not have been my name on there, but, uh, you know, it was Ian Poulter, four handicap, signed uh, by the club bro, apparently, uh, and sent off to the PJ. They accepted me, which was great, because I went and played my first event and shot 66-66 to win by two. Was that, that wasn't one of the East Region events where yeah, you won £1,500? £1,500, yeah. That's a lot of money for a... It is a load of money. And that must have, you know, even at a small scale event, it's, it's a good lot of money, but also it must give you sudden, suddenly a certain belief and uh, vindication that this is the right path for you. Well, it was, how many more events can I play this year? Because I quite like 1500 quid and not having to do, you know, kind of 15, 16 weeks of work for it. What did you spend that on? Uh, I bought a car. No, you do surprise me. <laughs> what was the car you bought? Well, I had to. I mean, I mean, uh, I bought a Vauxhall Astra, uh, I bought a Vauxhall Astra for three hundred pounds. Did you do some work on it? Did you? Get In fact, it? I'd already bought a car pr- prior to that because I bought a car when I was seventeen with the money I'd saved up at work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I won that event, I upgraded the car 
from a Voxel Astra ended up going to an XR2. Right, so did you get a that? A bit more boy racery, you know, the old three-spoke yeah, yeah, mag yeah. wheels. Yeah. Um, Straight to Halfords to get big speakers put in there. I might have had one large speaker on the back parcel shelf, yeah, which kind of shook the uh, the rear view mirror and maybe the the rest of the car to pieces. But, yeah, so there was a stereo system put in, a rather large subwoofer, and I'm sure everyone thought I was a bit of a yeah. knob. But... <laughs> no, not at all. That's no, cool. not at all. No, but they must have, And, again, you've got that conference now on the playing side of things, so what's the process? You're giving lessons to youngsters still for a pound a time, but all the time you're dreaming of getting on tour somehow. Well, I left shortly after winning the tournament at Pangzanga Classic. I left the shop because I was not... Um, enjoy my boss. I was asked to take the trophy off the counter, take it home, uh, don't need the trophy at the golf course. Is that not quite good advertising, though, for you who's giving lessons and for you at the shop? There's... Generally, but my boss was a complete and utter... <coughs> I see. So um, so we left there, uh-huh. and I went to work for a Tottenham supporter, uh, Lee Scarborough at Leighton Buzzer Golf Club, just down the road from Woburn. Lee's very grateful you've just mentioned his name that cleared up that he was not the... <laughs> Lee was not the uh, yeah, okay. um, other gentleman, no. Good old so, so Lee Scarborough, and well, actually I've got a quote from Lee Scarborough, said, you were always late, you would blame cats, dogs, deers, moose and flat tyres. Yeah, that's probably true. I mean, it's, a bit, it's quite a long way to get to work, to be honest. I mean, it was about 50 minutes. I managed to get it down to 41 on the odd occasion. <laughs> so yeah. the XR2 was moving it. You know, a hell of a pace yeah. to get me there. But, you know, there was the odd time where I obviously snoozed it a couple of times and mm. dragged myself out of bed. But, you know, pulling over at the side of the road and rubbing your hands on the brake dust from the alloy wheels to make out you've had to change your tyre. Yeah, we had to do that a couple of times. Yeah. But And so then from Leighton Buzzard, still working as an assistant, still giving lessons, then what is the process for getting onto the... Was the Challenge Tour your first... Aim because it had sort of just become established as a sort of a bit of a stepping stone getting into the European Tour. Yeah, we played in the region all the way through, so I wanted to make sure I got my PGA qualification. So joined the PGA, uh, doing all my exams, failing one of them, and having to do a reset, which was really a, a complete pain in the ass. But what, what particular subject uh, area was that? That was uh, commercial studies. Right. I was never good at revising or you're still, never good at exams. So. But you're still having to re-whip golf clubs at this point in time. They, they, yeah, they re-whip, um, still doing inserts, yeah. re-gripping, etc. So I passed that I passed that section, I passed the coaching, I just had the commercial studies that I had to redo. So at the end of that year, this is uh, 1998, hmm. I'd had a couple of attempts to get my Challenge Tour card, so I went to... Basically went to tour school, paid my money. It was like 1200 entry fee, I think it was back then, to get your card. Failed twice, and on the third attempt, which was 98, I, uh, I managed to get a challenge tour card for the 99 season. Well, I mean, we'll come on to because the honours board here, the Ian Polter honours board is in this room, and it's just beside your shoulder there. We're going to get a look at that because the first tournament is on the challenge tour. But but just when you say you, you you missed out a couple of times, you came close and then you got your card. And again, we, we think of you as this person of unwavering belief. But there are lots, so many people trying to make it. And you've seen them all at tour school. Was there doubt in there or was it always, no, this will happen for me. It's just a matter of time. I didn't think that it wouldn't happen. So it was a case of I was super young. I was super 
inexperienced going the way I was. I was chancing it, to be honest, as going as early as I was because, you know, I was working in a shop for all my time. So it wasn't like I could dedicate all my hours in every single day to just practice, 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 practice. I was just playing and practicing before or after shop hours. Mm. So I knew that, and obviously playing golf in the region and earning reasonable money at pro-ams and some of the events I played in, I had kind of enough money to be able to give it a go. You know, mm. let's just, let's give it a go. Let's, let's try and um, see if we can get it, you know, get a card, get a position to go and play more golf because my East region re- results were always pretty good. Yeah. The year of 98, I played the Hippo Tour. So that was kind of like a step up. I played 11 of the 17 Order of Merit events and um, I won the Order of Merit from from only playing the 11 events. The Hippo Tour, that one's... Actually, Hippo I do tour. vaguely remember the Hippo Tour. <clears throat> I remember them as a brand as well. Um, so anyway, let us turn our heads to the board here. 1999... The 18th opened the Côte d'Ivoire. So, I mean, what, first of all, what was it like in the Ivory Coast? Because it's not a destination you think of for for golf in particular. But tell us about that that winning week. It was a it was a fun week. I didn't have a caddy really at the time, so I chose a local caddy who looked like Bob Marley. Had a huge um, huge dreadlock. Uh, had this big rasta hat on, and um, we literally sung Bob Marley songs for. Four days. He read every putt. I hold every putt. And um, I think I had 102 putts for the week on super grainy greens. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a fun week. I mean, it was, it was strange. It was one of the strangest places I've played golf to date. Yeah. I mean, obviously, very third world and um, poverty was everywhere. But, you know, it was, it was great, obviously, to, to get the win. Can you remember any other notable players who were in the field at that time trying to get onto the David Lynn, Simon Hurd. I'm not sure if Justin played that week. Yeah. Actually, that's a good point. We'll come on to your uh, first sort of encounters and living with Justin Rose. That's a sort of uh, a story in itself. But um, So there you are. You're winning, you're winning on the Challenge Tour in 99. Was it a fairly seamless progression onto the, onto the European Tour? No, I, won, I mean I won early in the season, but you didn't. Then, you didn't get your card from the order no, of the challenge tour. I didn't. I didn't win early in that season. Oh, I won early in the season, and then kind of missed cuts, made cuts, didn't really finish off quite as well as I thought I probably could have done. Hmm. So then had to go back to the school. So straight back to the school at the end of '98, and I finished 21st at the school, hmm. which got me my European tour card for 2000 season. Hmm. I should have actually. I meant to ask you if you if you gave a decent percentage to your Bob Marley lookalike in Cote d'Ivoire, or did you couture him? I don't know what. Uh, I didn't couture him. No. Oh, okay. No. Oh God. Uh, he was paid. He was paid nicely, and um, obviously, I didn't have the physical cash on me to give him right there. But I took. I went to the club secretary at the golf course and asked if I could send him the money, the golf club sending the money, and then the golf club pay the caddy. Right. So uh, I then sent a letter, paid the club, and then I received a letter back from the caddy to say he was, uh, he'd was he been paid, he was very happy. Oh, tremendous. He was straight out so of it was great. Yeah, he, I mean, I'm not quite going to tell you exactly what he told me he was going to spend it on. But, um, <laughs> <coughs> so well, <laughs> part of it was going to be a television for his, for his home, right. which was great. Yeah. Uh, and the rest of it, he's he's um, he's probably still smoking it now. <laughs> Good. <laughs> oh dear, excellent. Good stuff. So there we are. Uh, right. Okay. So then we're uh, talking about you know that was a win at the start of '99. 
got your card onto European tour and straight away that season, things were pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I think I did okay. I finished second in Morocco, mm. which was kind of March, April time. I reshuffled from 21st and I kind of re-ranked up to about second in the re-rank, which was really important. So if you get a card at the school, you've got to move up in the, yeah. the early rankings to make sure you're going to be in you know, some of those tournaments um, which are going to be, you know, tough from a from just getting your card yeah. uh, to making it in. So, yeah, I re-ranked number two, had a bit of success, and obviously I was moving up moving up that list on the order of merit and got obviously in a position uh, where I knew I needed to win in Italy to win the uh, uh, Rookie of the Year. Yeah, and, and you did. Were you, were, so were you living with Justin Rose at this time? I wasn't living with him, no. I mean, I was roommate, so, you know, the... That's kind of, kind of living with, isn't it? Not quite, not quite. I mean, the second half of the season on Challenge Tour and then going back to, obviously, Tour School at the end of 99, you know, Justin and I were, you know, were good mates and obviously uh, rooming week to week. I mean, uh, and he's we've had a chat to him on this uh, Life on Tour podcast series and, it, you know, it was hard for him at the start. So were you, you were close to him at the time when he was having real struggles um, yeah, I was very close. Um, I mean, how was that for, for him? I mean, the trouble is with a golfer, you've got to be so concentrated on your own form, but you must be very aware that someone who's been told they're going to be the next big star is having all sorts of struggles. Yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't easy, you know, for him missing 21 cuts, I think it was, and, you know, and you're his roommate trying to, you know, trying to give him a bit of advice as only a, a guy who's, you know, fresh out on, yeah. on tour himself. And you're polishing the Italian Open trophy in front of him. <laughs> well... But yeah, I mean, but you're trying to, you know, you're you're doing what you can to help him and say the right things. He's a good mate, and you obviously want your mate to do well. So you know, even then, as as early as it was for me on tour, you could see that you know he was going to figure it out pretty quick. Yeah. So while you're not quite living with him, you are. And again, we're going deep into your personal life here. But you've met your wife when 1995, Katie. I met Katie 95. Yeah. Okay. And so she was with you from the... She's been with you pretty much for the sort of whole journey. Yeah, it, do you need that support when you're starting out in the game? Yeah, I mean, you need to be happy, right? In, in whatever relationship you're in, you know, even if you're single, you need, to, you need to be happy. So you need a bit of stability there. You need a good, you know, you need a good agent. You need someone who can rationalise things when things aren't going very well. Uh, and that person, obviously, for me, was obviously having Katie, who was... Uh, very rock solid and obviously the girl who was paying the bills to start with. Yeah. Now, I mentioned when you won that East Region event and won £1,500, you went out and splashed out on a Fiesta or upgraded to a Fiesta XR2 or whatever. So what did you... Well, I know what you did because I've got it written down here. I know what you bought when you won your Italian Open. But is it true that it was... Uh, so that was your first... Well, the second Italio, Italian Open. OK. I I always said to myself, if I win on tour, I'm going to buy... going to treat myself to a Ferrari. Mm-hmm. But the first check wasn't... Quite enough. Once I'd paid my tax and paid my caddy and yeah. paid all my all my stuff, so I then won the Moroccan Open after that, which that was a much smaller check. Uh, so that one wasn't quite enough either. So I decided to buy a nice house at the time mm. to get s- well, set up. Sensible, good. I'm glad. And then uh, yeah, I won the Italian Open, so I thought it was an omen. So, so we decided to go and splash on a toy. There we are, 2002. Did you buy it in Italy, did you? Or... I didn't know it was bought in uh, in the Froe dealership near Wentworth. Really? Hang so, on. I mean, again, you, you're known for your love of cars, and you don't just buy them as 
things to drive or you buy them, you have, you have a collection of cars. You're a bit of an aficionado for cars. Has that always been a, a passion of yours? Always, always loved cars from a, from, from a young kid, you know, playing with, you know, the boy toys, the kid toys. And my uncle had a, you know, a couple of nice cars, a Porsche and RS Cosworth. And, you know, he always had nice cars. So occasionally we'd go you know, and be driven in nice cars. And it was always something that we couldn't afford. Mum and dad can never really afford a nice car. So for me, it was a it was a big treat thing, you know, a, a little sign of success to say you've done well, and um, I, you know, I was able to obviously treat myself to, to a couple of nice toys. How much do you know about what goes on under the bonnet? Are you a real petrol head? Or... Well, there's a difference between a real petrol head and someone that buys something that you just really shouldn't touch. Right. I'm not qualified to stick my nose under a bonnet of a Ferrari and start tampering with it okay so wouldn't, how many wouldn't be wouldn't wouldn't be advisable no enzo would be cross yeah he is he still with us no anyway so yeah. um how many cars do you have at the moment uh collectibles 14 collectibles and the other ones are family cars and daily drivers right collectibles family cars and daily drivers. we've all we've all that's how we all split up our cars to collectibles family cars and daily drivers how, how many in total then are we including kids cars does that count do the children have cars? Is this sensible? How, so, yes. Amy's 15. Sorry, talking? Amy's 17. Sorry, Luke's 15. Right, Amy's cross now listening to this. She won't be listening sorry, to this. Sorry, uh, Amy's, Amy's 17. She's been driving for two years. Oh, yeah, Luke is now 12 15. In America. Yeah. Uh, and as you know, in America, you can actually drive at 15 yeah. with a parent. So well, we're Luke's going to need a car real soon. Um, right, so how many cars in total then? You... There's a lot. <laughs> okay, there's, it's there's some number. It, I'm quite it, vague it's about it. It's over 14. Okay. Excellent. What's your favourite car in your collection then? Your, collect, your 14 collectibles? Uh, probably probably the oldest one out of all of them, the 275 GTB4 Cam. Oh, that's a pretender. 1967. That. It's kind of it's a very elegant, pretty uh, front end, reminds people of kind of like an E-type Jag. Mm. Enzo Ferrari back then said that, uh, an E-Type Jab was the prettiest car in the world. Yeah. And you can see a, a, a big resemblance between that and the 275. And are the collectibles all in, in Florida? Yeah. Okay. In your house? Or I have one here, but it's not It's not something I drive. It's just tucked away. Okay. And now I need to... This We all need to know is, do you own the car, the police car that drove Rory McIlroy to his almost late tea time? I'm looking after it. I, ha- I have a little piece of it, yeah. So it is true that there is yeah. a that, that car was that car is a, tracked around. down. Is it right? So uh, yeah, three people at the Golf Channel uh, bought it. Really? I think for seven thousand bucks. Okay, so if, if people don't know, listening, I mean, they will know that Rory McIlroy was almost late for his. Was it Keegan Bradley who was playing? I think it Keegan was. Bradley in match, the singles match two or three. Medina, he was running late because he didn't understand time zones, and he got a lift in a police car with a police officer. And you part on that car now. Yeah. Is he one of the other owners? He's not, no. Oh, we should certainly sell him a piece of that. No, we should. Right, let's get back to the golf. Um, because, as you mentioned, your second Italian Open win in 2002. I mean, again, what were your goals at this? What was your sort of belief that your career would path would take at this point? Because you've won on tour, you must be thinking, right, and kick on the majors and play in the Ryder Cup. Exactly that. I mean, obviously, I, I played in the Open in 2000, so that was my first experience which was amazing, uh, going through qualifying at Ladybank to to make it into uh, you know my first Open at St Andrews and then obviously having some success, a few wins in the first couple of years. It was the vision to 
you know, let's see if we can make a Ryder Cup team from that from that moment. Which was the one at St Andrews where you wore the trousers with the names of all the winners on them? Was that two thousand five? Right. Okay. So what was two thousand? That wasn't because the two thousand four was, was Union nothing. Jack. I was. I was. Um, it was very muted. It was my first year on tour, and yeah, it was very calm. Was that a conscious decision then to actually become more flamboyant to make yourself stand out? I couldn't really afford to be that flamboyant back then. No, but then after that, when you did, when you wore the Union Jack trousers and things like that and your hair was cut did you think you know golf needs a bit of color and perhaps it's a selling point as well for me i loved i mean i loved when you look at parnovic when you mm. you know you look at the personalities in golf you know even john daly Seve, faldo if you if you look through the years and greg norman you know look at the guys that were a little bit different they were doing whether whether they were super dedicated or super flamboyant or just very different they were the guys that people would follow in golf. Mm. And I just didn't want to be run-of-the-mill wearing the khaki pants and the, the navy T-shirt and a baseball cap. And, and that's all your decision to... No one's yeah. saying, I'll tell you what, Ian, you, you, if you really want to stand out, you can wear this, but that was just all you. Yeah, I mean, the, the Union Jack trousers were a little were a little crazy. Are, are they, they here? Not, yeah, they were in here. They've obviously uh, they've been, they've been moved. Uh, but, yeah, the the... Andrew, the Duke of Bedford, he uh, purchased them. Did he? Yeah. So I gave the money to uh, uh, the hospital in Scotland when Luke was poorly after six weeks. Oh, yeah, amazing. Um, and, and when people are, you know, you'll hear the good and the bad of that, oh, like, colourful guy, but some people say, oh, what does he look like? Does that, does any, did any of that bother you at all, or are you just confident in what you're doing? And well, I happen? mean, I was always super confident in what I was doing, and, I, I, you know, for a long time there, I wasn't really bothered. Uh, and then, obviously, social media comes around, and, you know, people could share their comments a bit more. So instead of the odd person saying something that really didn't bother me, you open up a new forum and, you know, people people have the opportunity to, to, to say things. Yeah. Well, we're going to come to that later, but we might as well mention social media. It's a strange world we live in now, but you were sort of one of the early adopters, one of the early starters on, on Twitter. Did you like it at first and do you still like it? I still love it. I, I think I started in 2009. Mm. I think one of the first messages I put out was when it was actually at Beth Page when we'd had all the, all the rain... And I teed off 10, hit driver, massive mud ball in the middle of the fairway. And I think I remember taking a picture of the mud on the ball and actually tweeting it, which caused a bit of an issue because then they banned you actually being able to use a phone during the round of golf. So um, that was a slap on the wrist. But, you know, I've always loved it. I've loved it from a perspective of giving people a, a view in to the... You know, the crazy world we live in yeah. uh, as a golfer. And, you know, I've loved it. I've had a love-hate relationship with it. You know, for, for a number of years, I would always retaliate to people saying uh, stuff that I'd object, object to, um, which I've learned to grow up on that a little bit and yeah. try not to uh, not to retaliate anymore. Uh, how, how, because we all know to a certain extent how difficult it can be when people have their say, that's one of the great strengths and the great sort of annoyances of Twitter is that, especially as a sportsman, you'll come off after a bad round, you'll know you've played badly. The last thing you want to see is someone saying, oh, blown it for me. It's usually someone who's got some money on you. But, I mean, how do you, can you shut that out? Well, you can try to, but it's the same It's the same as if you, you know, watch the Golf Channel and Brandel Chambly's deciding to, if you're Brooks Kepka, you know, Chambly's deciding to tear him apart uh, when he's won three out of seven majors at the time before he goes and wins four out of eight. So, you know, 
it's mm. kind of that same thing when someone when someone wants to put you down it really annoys you mm. um and i've had a fair share of that i think i've you know i've had my fingers burnt with it when you know a guy was heckling and he was getting you know unfortunately luke was listening to some of the stuff he had to say and you know there was there was a guy who worked for a college and he was enjoying posting his picture with his mates that were putting me off on the golf course mm. and found it very funny and obviously I retweeted that and said it's a bit disappointing someone of your stature would be doing something like that and then obviously he was fired from his job that wasn't the attempt intention of me reposting that yeah. but you know um I took a lot of flack for that for a long time yeah but you're still not afraid to voice opinions and 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 you know we in the media and even out with the media people want golfers to be interesting say interesting things and then when they stick their head above the parapet they get shot down for for saying interesting things I saw you talking about um, you know women's abortion rights and you you probably get come back on that I'm not sure if you still feel confident enough to go on on any subject on Twitter if you feel strongly enough about it yeah I mean I you know we we all have opinions on things and I think it is a is a forum to air your thoughts. But everybody has their own opinion to certain things, uh, and I'm I'm happy to say it. If it upsets a few people, that's not my problem. I mean, my my views are my views, and uh, if someone objects to it, you can't please everyone in life. You know, there's always going to be a side of somebody uh, which you can upset with saying something. Mm. So I just I don't I don't choose to let that affect me anymore. And if I don't like something they're saying, I mean, it's just a simple block. And they never have to be there again. Yeah. So if they don't like what I say, just just press the unfollow button. It's really simple. Yeah. It works every time. I mute. <laughs> it's the coward's block. You just mute. Is it mute? You yes. don't because they don't, don't know they've been blocked. So no, I, I have no problem in telling someone they're blocked. No, I'm I'm a massive coward. Um, so back on <laughs> to the golf course, and you know, Ryder Cup is such a massive part of your life, and you came so close in 2002 to making the team i mean did that serve as sort of an extra motivation for you to once you had been so close to saying and also feeling that it look it's going to happen but just really wanting to get on it the was great fuel yeah. is what it was obviously missing out getting a call from sam to say unfortunately you know i can't pick you for the team but i'd like you to be a first reserve that was hard and I do remember going to play in switzerland the following week after that and i was paired with him and i think i was nine over through nine uh, handed him a scorecard after nine holes and said, I think if I can be excused, I need to go home. So, you know, I, I took that pretty bad. I didn't enjoy that. And I think from there it was pretty, um, you know, fuel on the fire to, you know, to kick on and make sure I made every team after that. Now, your first one was Oakland Hills, which was a bit of a, a route, so a great one to... I mean, you've played in six, you've won five of them, so it's, a, you know, it's astonishing record in many ways I would say I was commentating on your singles match in uh, that one which was such a big win in 04 in 04 people were confused about where the winning putt was and I was saying to our director I was saying Poulter's got a putt to win here was it 5 and 4 or something against Chris Riley 4 and 3 4 and 3 it was on on the 15th 4 and 3 that's right and I was saying this is a putt effectively to guarantee the trophy but Monty Monty was on the 18th just about at the same time but I don't know. Not because I'm interviewing you, but I'll say to my dying day that you you sunk the warning part at Oakland. Sounds a lot better if Monty does. It's more, <laughs> you know. How was that experience <clears> at <throat> Oakland Hills? I was, it was awesome. It was great. From a team perspective, 
you know the team was super super strong and it was one of those where you could see the they were they had issues in their team mm. uh right from obviously captain um you know trying to force Phil and Tiger to play together which didn't work and then obviously uh that kind of snowballed through the team really but it was great uh, Langer was awesome as a captain and uh kind of really got my got my toes wet in in the whole you know Ryder Cup experience I didn't play on Friday mm. playing you know, my first match with Darren on, on Saturday and not winning was not a great feeling. So, you know, straight out of the blocks, losing my first match uh, was, was was pretty miserable. So a little bit of, you know, payback in winning my singles after that. So on match play, I mean, the, the, you know, you seem to be almost a different beast playing match play. Do you think you're a better player? Do you enjoy it more, that sort of combative nature? I do. I do like the, the confrontation of one-on-one. You know, you stay... You're, opponent straight in the face you know what he's doing all the time and you know you can in some way shape or form influence matches with certain shots mm. so I do like I do like that aspect you know my stroke play I feel has been very very solid through the years but you know people are going to earmark the Ryder Cup and you know the match play stuff and say so that's that's obviously been my forte what Ryder Cup or what match within a Ryder Cup stands out for you in particular uh, like I say, they're all well. They're all my favourites. They're all my children. But there must be a moment from a Ryder Cup or a, one particular match that stands out for you. Well, you you'll be able to guess which one it would be. I'm sure. Um, well, you've put me in the spot now. Um, would it be? Let's uh, see. It's not difficult. See, I should have prepared better for this. I've, I've been at it. It's fine. We can we can put a we can put an edit point in here, so I can have a long think about it, and it'll seem seamless. <laughs> Just have a little think here. Medina. Well, I was going to say Medina, Ian, actually. Was you? Yeah, well done. Very so good. Medina, would yeah, that be uh, on the Saturday I, night then? To Saturday, after, Saturday afternoon's yeah. match. I think, you know, we were 10, we were ten four down. So mm. the little run Rory and I had from 13 to close out, you know, six birdies, six birdies on the bounce, Rory birdie in 13, and I mopped a few in, mm. obviously, to come into the clubhouse, which was great. You know, that that kind of hour and a half was... Some of the craziest time I've I've ever experienced on a golf course from a from a perspective of adrenaline rush, being behind in the match, turning a match round, having Michael Jordan being the US talisman that he was to try and get in your face and kind of try and be the guy that you know wants to try and put you off. Yeah. Um, you know, it was it was a remarkable finish, Sergio and. Luke Donald turning their match around just in front of us to make it 10-5 and then you know coming up the last hole having Duffner who's made a he's made a five foot putt to make birdie and then after hole a 15 footer on top of him to to give us a 10-6 chance uh was was probably the the maddest Ryder Cup um experience I've had. Uh, Who came up with the the postman? The name was it that year, or was it Celtic Manor that someone first coined it? Postman always delivers. It was, it was at Celtic Manor, right? Because I said on the range that when uh, Tim Barter was asking me about going to play Matt Kuchar, <laughs> I said I will deliver my point. So at that point, um, after winning that match, they I got in the locker room and they all started calling me the postman. Okay. Are you also scared of dogs? Am I scared of dogs? Oh, just a postman thing. Anyway. No, not at all. <laughs> Love dogs. Actually, do you have dogs? You have yeah, I've got two dogs, do Bentley you know? and Enzo. 
Bentley and Enzo. Ah, yes. there we are. Uh, I'm spotting a, a connection here. What kind of dogs are they? They are Labradoodles. Right, okay. And don't, yeah, well, people get them because they don't shed They don't far. shed. Yeah. I'm allergic to cat hair, dog hair, yeah. so... Okay. Mm. Well, I'm not all about uh, Labradoodles, but uh, I'll allow you that. Enzo and Bentley. Excellent. Yeah. Right, okay, so, um, I mean, the Ryder Cup is one thing, but, you know, you've desperately craved success in the majors. I suppose the closest you've come in the majors would be when you got into the clubhouse at Burtdale. Um Did you think... Did you think you had a real chance when you got in there? I mean, Harrington finished so, so well, but... I definitely thought I had a chance. I thought the putt on the last hole was, at the time, my opportunity to win a major. And there's a funny story. Terry, uh, as I chipped on to about 15 feet and Terry puts the bag at the back of the green, I called. I kind of called him over. And Terry's kind of face was a picture because he hasn't looked at a single putt for four days... And he now thinks I'm going to ask him to read a putt, which, albeit a putt that I think and he thinks is a chance to win. And I said to him, did you ever putt on a putting green at home when you was a kid and it was to win the Open? He says, yeah. I said, well, I've got it, now go away. Yeah, I don't think And then I rolled away. it in. I didn't say go away, no, I said something <laughs> else. But um, So it was kind of a funny, it was a funny moment yeah. at the time. I rolled it in, you know, got off the back of the 18th green, and I think for about 10 minutes, I thought, yeah, you know, there's there's a chance. And then obviously Harrington made a couple of birdies and obviously it kind of stretched itself out. He hit a great shot into 17 and it was all over. It seemed to be at your best in majors when it almost becomes that the atmosphere lifts and it's, you know, getting, I'm not saying getting like a match play situation because you're playing in a different group to Harrington, but when you know, it just gets so exciting and tense and that's when you become almost, a, you know, it's sort of, it, inflate in size and have a best chance to win a major yeah I mean I don't I don't think my major results have been they haven't been as good as I would like to have had them you know I've had a second I've had a third I've you know I've been in position you know this year at the Masters I think you've let yourself down in the majors by your own standards a a little bit I mean I you know I would have loved to have had a major by now and and it hasn't come around and I just haven't played well enough for four days and you know, I've played well enough to be in position a number of times and I've hit the wrong shot at the wrong time and just not taken taken my chances and that's it's frustrating. Do you, I mean, obviously, I was going to say, do you believe you can still win one? Obviously you do, but where do you think your best chance lies to win a, to win a major? Well, the Masters or the Open Championship. Hmm. As, I mean, As we sit here about to go to US Open. Well, US um, Open at Pebble Beach is... Yeah, no, even, a... even, yeah, I mean, even Pebble Beach. You know, looking how I played Shinnecock last year, being in position, you know, right there up until Sunday, even with a triple bogey on my 17th hole of of my second round, you know, I'm, I'm within a couple of shots of the lead. So, you know, when courses are tough, tricky, and and not just set out to be a bomber's week, then I've got a chance. I mean, you could, and a few players have said this, that about the PGA, they never had a chance to win it because it's just it's down to about 10 players maximum who could win there because of the way that was set up. And that's the way golf seems to be going. Do you think you're not the longest hit in the world, that it has to be a certain week for you and a certain setup for you to be able to compete? I definitely think there are weeks that are going to be easier for me to be in contention. You know, Beth Page, I mean, I've played a practice round and, you know, as confident as I am and, and the will to win... You know, it was pretty apparent pretty early into that week that it was going to be a tough week. Mm. 
you know, I, I, I think I would have had to have played my very best golf to have a top 10 finish. And I would have had to have done something superhuman to have even had a chance to win. That is a week that, you know, can run away from you very quickly. Mm. It's really frustrating. And I know that's how a few of these venues are going to be. We've talked about your belief on the on the course and, and sort of off the course in your game, and it's, it's carried you a long way as one of your great strengths. The one quote that sort of follows you around is what you said about Tiger, that what was the exact quote? It was when it was just... Well, the analogy was when I looked at the world rankings. So when I looked at the world, world rankings, that I would always look at every single week and was I moving up and how was I doing... I basically said I'd I'd like you know it to be Tiger than me, but obviously when you say that and you say it in a way of when when I was visually looking at the world rankings, I'd love at some stage, you know, be Tiger Woods myself. But it came across in a way that then got wrote in a magazine that it's just Tiger and me, right. yeah. which was a fun two years. That was, yeah. Well, did he say to you, hey, number two or something when he saw you? Yeah, I mean, he made a funny joke, but that was obviously Claude Harmon and, you know, those guys and, and Westy and the boys having a bit of a bit of banter, mm. which is fine, but it was obviously taken a bit further than that with yeah. papers and magazines and continual uh, social media. How did you get on with um, Tiger? Because, uh, well, I, I'm not sure that any... Uh, of his fellow players, not many know him really. Do, do you chat to him? Do you? Yeah, I mean, I I chat to him when we play. Mm. I, I mean, I don't have his telephone number, and I, I I've never really shared a dinner with him or a, had a drink with him. Uh, what's he like as a person? I don't I don't really know. Is the honest answer to that? I have never spent enough time in his company away from the golf course to really get to know the Tiger Woods. Off the course, hmm. so it's it's difficult. I mean, the Tiger Woods on the golf course is a, is a is a good guy. Hmm. I mean, he's you know super super focused, super ruthless, and you know, he's a difficult person to play golf with. Yeah. What's the truth behind the hitching a lift in his private jet? Is that did that happen as as described by no, those people? No, no. I I was actually at. Um, I'm trying to think of the course we were playing. It was Oakmont. Right, okay. And he was crossing one hole, I was crossing another. I joined up with him to play. And I just asked him where he was going back to at the time he was living in Orlando. And I was catching a I was catching a southwest flight. Oh, come on. Oh, um, what are you supposed to do? So I just said to him, I said, you go back to Orlando? And he said, yeah, I'm heading back to Orlando. I said, is there any chance of a lift? So he said, yeah, sure. Just make sure you're at the airport at four o'clock. Hmm. So I drove to the airport and um, got on the plane, had pizza and Diet Coke, and he sat up front with, uh, I think he was with Hank Haney at the time, and the two of them sat up front, and I sat a number of seats further back and had a pizza and chilled and went back to Orlando and got off the flight, said thanks a lot, and went home. Yeah. I mean, players do that all the time, because they're all, all based the in time. Florida. They must share private jets. We do it all the time, yeah. Okay. So it's not very unusual. It's not an unusual thing, but of course, you know, Poulter mooches a, <laughs> you know, a ride on Tiger's plane. Yeah, so that was another. That was another one that um, uh, Hank obviously put in his book, wasn't mm. it? So that's where that came from. Uh, but that's fine. 
not a problem. What about, um, I've just remembered, and I've, I actually I had blocked it out of my memory, but um, posing nude, well, you had a golf bag in front of you and a magazine. Whose idea was that? To, Why has that just popped up in your mind? Uh, it comes out every other day or so, it pops really? up in my head, yeah, yeah. Very well. strange. Um, was that uh, someone suggested it to Some you? Some silly magazine uh, journalist said, uh, why don't you take a picture with just a bag in front of you? So, I mean, I, he caught me at a bad time because obviously I've agreed to it and that picture went out in the magazine and, of course, the rest is history, right? But, but see, you don't strike me as a man who has, and it's probably the best way to be, don't regret things, you know, it's just a bit of fun. But do you, do you sometimes just think that? It was fun, yeah. that was it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I don't... Um, it's not like I framed it and put it up on my wall. And I have. kind of uh, well, well done. Would you like me to sign it? <laughs> um, you know, it was one of those. It was a it was a fun thing to do at the time, and um, that's what it was. I mean, it was a nice pink golf bag, anyway. Yeah, it was. I was back in the head again. Right, I'm, I'm pushing it away, and it hasn't all been plain sailing on the course because you know, very recently you had injury and you slipped down. You were just you know nearing dropping out of the top two hundred in the world. And the, that was a difficult time for you, 2016. Mm-hmm. Again, does that test your belief that, because you know you're advancing in years as well at that stage, I think, right, can I get back there? Advancing in years, is that a polite way of saying you're getting old? You're getting old, getting an old fella. Is that the pol- politically yeah. correct way of saying it? Exactly. Um, yeah, the grey hairs were coming through and I had a bad 2016 foot injury, was, was not good timing and... You know, it was a low. It was a low point. So that five months that I took off, kind of from May all the way to October, was was a tough chunk of time. But you know, there were also a number of things going on off the golf course, which um, which were just there was too much noise, too much stuff going on. Obviously, I had a clothing business which had been going eleven years. Did you just close that down to sort of free yourself and shut it down just to simplify everything? You know, the business was. And a very okay, but it was just okay. Mm. Um, it was it was washing its face, and the amount of time it was taking to have a business wash its face after that long is not good enough. Yeah. So uh, we shut it down. I uh, changed my management system back to Paul Dunkley, mm. uh, which was always how it used to be. But um, you know there was there were a number of mistakes being made. And uh, it was becoming you know, too too frustrating. So I just, I literally had to get rid of everyone. I had to get rid of my tax accountant. I had to get rid of my bookkeeper. had to get rid of my everyone. It was a full clean out to, to get it back to basics. There were too many mistakes being made and they were extremely costly. When you get stuff off the golf course creeping in, obviously it affects your game. But, but were you learning lessons in business and in life and... Perhaps getting the raw end of deal. I don't know what was happening, you know, business-wise, but was it just all becoming a bit too much in terms? It was of- just too much. It was too much. It was just a number of things, one after another. I mean, getting back on the golf course after the injury was was good, uh, but shortly after that was the time where we had to clean up the rest of the business staff and the man, the agency staff, and uh, you know, people that were just making too many mistakes that no. were too costly, and you know, to get it really back to basics employ a full-time PA that works in my office. You know, I've got one point of contact and simplify my life. I've got Paul Dunkley who runs all my all my contractual stuff. You've got a great trust in the people who are running things off the course for you. You have to. You have to. And, you know, that's been that's been the turnaround really to simplify everything 
and get things back to basics. Uh, we saw, I mean, you, we saw you almost back in the Masters. We thought you were back in the Masters. You thought you were back in the Masters and then not quite uh, the world match play qualification. I mean, that was, in retrospect, was actually quite funny because you did get in. But <laughs> um, that was a bit of a... And even before that, you relied on kindness of... Rich Beam and then Brian Gay spotting something in terms of allowing you sort of uh, to play enough tournaments to keep your European tour status and then to to get the chance to to play in tournaments to win more money. So I, there was a lot of it. It was a sick. crazy few months. Yeah. I mean, the Rich Beam situation, I had fallen out the top 50 of the world. I'd banked on HSBC champions being one of my events, which were going to count to European tour because I fell to 51st. I wasn't in. And therefore, I wasn't going to play Hong Kong at the last minute. Rich Beam was playing Hong Kong. He gave his invite back for me to play. That was a bit of craziness. And then Brian Gay's situation was he thought he was in the Players' Championship Mm. from the money and points he'd earned. And he'd realised that they'd done a calculation error. Which devalued his points, which obviously meant my points were devalued. So that brought it to the attention of the PGA Tour. And then I got a nice phone call to say, in New Orleans, actually, you you did actually do enough in your 10 events that you played under the medical exemption mm. to earn a card. And actually, you did well enough to get into the Players' Championship. So, yeah. And then I went and finished second in the Players. Which, to Siwoo Kim. To Siwoo Kim, which you know was huge in world ranking points and obviously yeah. uh, boosted me back up... Uh, and so then you're on the rise again. And last year at Houston, after you thought you were in the Masters but weren't through the match play, then to go into there and win, you, you saw the... It was almost Ryder Cup-esque, Ian Poulter, after the playoff with Bo Hostel beating the chest and everything. But was that possibly your, I don't know, your favourite victory because it was doing it in a stroke play event on the PGA Tour as well? I think it, I think it was, a, you know, if I look back as one of the most important wins of all the wins that I've had, it was probably one of the most important ones from... Six years away from the winner's circle, going through what's happened in 2016, and uh, to come back the way you know the way we've come back to put myself in a position to have to win to make the Masters. Yeah, I think there was a number. There's a number of things which made that a very special win. Yeah, um, think what the next aim for you is. I mean, obviously majors would be the icing on the cake for you, but. Um, how many years do you think you've got left competing as you advance in years um, at the sort of top level? I don't know. It's a, that's a tough question. I'm 43. I feel I'm playing probably some of my best golf in my life right now. And obviously Ryder Cup qualification starts again in September. Mm. So with that in mind, you know, I'd like to move... You know, I'd like to move back up in the world rankings. I'd like to make it back into the top 20. I'd, like, I'd love to make it back into the top 10, like I was in 2010. And if I can do that, then anything that's really possible from a perspective of, of playing great golf, how long am I going to continue that form for? I don't know. I'd like to stretch it out till, yeah. till 50, for sure. And what is it, you, you, is it that drives you? I mean, you always said, even since being a young boy in various sports, very competitive. Is is it as simple as that, or is it a, a financial thing, or is it wanting respect from other players and fans and whoever? What is it that motivates you? Just the want to win, the want to always try and improve, succeed, still be relevant as a as a strong player in the game of golf. You know, it's not it's not easy to do that in your forties. 
but it's something that a few people have done and you know I feel the way I'm I'm playing and I f- the way I feel I've got a number of good years left at that even going deeper into you know our psychoanalysis what why do you want to win I'm just wondering what makes a winner what makes a competitor is it is um, it sort of approval is it being there in the spotlight is it have well, you ever think, stopped to think about that well you, you question yourself when you haven't won for 6 years and you really think you know have I still got it so to be able to then win again gives you the reassurance and the you know the confidence to know you are still you're still relevant in the game of golf i mean i i guess that's a fear is being completely irrelevant mm. you know it, it will not be a nice day when you know i'm i'm too old to be competitive would you play seniors golf i haven't really thought about it yet but i mean never say never there's certainly a right cup captaincy to consider. You can, I mean, there are certain players who you, you know it's going to happen for. I speaking to Lee, uh, Lee Westwood the other day. You start to look forward and say, which one would be a nice one to, to captain in? I mean, again, that's perhaps a distance off free, but obviously it's something you would want to do. I'd, I mean, I'd love the opportunity, for sure. I think, you know, Ryder Cup's always been something that I've loved from day one. And if I get asked, obviously, I'm, I'm going to be delighted to. Which, where I fit in a sequence, if I'm asked, I'm not, you know, I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I would have an idea of where my time may come. Hmm. You going to tell us what when that would be? Well, I think I think Lee will probably be next yeah. on the list, which obviously has him in Italy. And if okay, would you want to do one in America or one in Europe? There we are. Take on the American crowds. I don't. I don't mind. I don't mind taking on the American crowds. You quite enjoy Maybe it. in New York. Oh. Maybe. Can you imagine Ian Poulter as captain of the European team at Bethpage? Can you imagine it, Ian? Look, if it's uh, if if it's thrown out there, then I'm not I'm not going to say no. Put it this way: I mean, it's going to be extremely loud and very boisterous, and it will it will need to be managed very well. I was about to say because Bethpage, even just there for the PGA and indeed for the the US Opens they've had there before. Yep. It it gets lively. Outland. Yeah, because they're sports fans. They're almost golf fans. They're just New York sports fans. But a Ryder Cup, it may well get too much. It's going it's to get out of hand, I think. And I think, I think something has to be put in place at Whistling Straits to be put put in place in Italy for there to be a stepping stone effect to be able to get a handle on what's going to happen. It will be a problem, okay. for sure. Let's throw the lit match of Ian Poulter as captain into the kindling of Bethpage <laughs> and see what happens. Stand by. All oh, right, off the course then, just quickly, because um, you have one of your... You're playing today here at Woburn with your youngest, your I four played children. With Luke, yeah. who's 15, right. and I played with uh, Joshua, who's seven, okay. and two other friends, two very good friends. friends. That's a five ball that's not allowed. So. Uh, technically, no, but I guess we secretary. weren't holding anyone up, so... Okay. You I put a signature was, on it. You I guess it was, it, was okay. it was okay. Joshua yeah. played from the from the pole to short course tees. Okay, now who shows real? Because uh, looks fifteen, you said, and yeah. does he show real talent? I mean, he's got some got some. Yeah, game, I clearly. mean, he he played last weekend. He played the Dukes and Duchess course in the club championship. He's handy official. I saw net 67, 68 or something. He's official handicapped nine because he obviously doesn't play. He only plays here in the summer. So he obviously, playing off of nine, he played quite nicely and only three guys managed to shoot a better score than he. So he's getting a big cut. So he got chopped from nine to 5.7. Would you want 
I guess what's always asked of sports people of their children, would you want them following in your footsteps? And going, I'd love it. Would you? If As long as he's happy and if he is really happy playing and being in that spotlight under pressure to play golf and if he feels that's that's what he wants to do and if he's good enough to do it, I'll be absolutely delighted. Okay. What else do you do off the course? Because cars, I, I mean, I saw you... you you occasionally pally with uh, with Rubens Barrichello. What do you do in your downtime when you're not playing golf? It's literally kid kid time. So whether it be taking Joshua out, whether it be um, you know just spending time with the kids, I really don't do an awful lot. I'm actually quite boring mm. from that perspective. But because we're away from the kids for so much time, that I just want to I want to be around the kids. Your season ticket holder at. Disney World. No, I'm not. I don't do the Disney yeah. thing. It's too busy. I don't like it. No. I, I don't do queues. No. I mean, I do do queues, but I just don't enjoy standing in the queue for two hours for a 40-second ride. That, that, that's not on my, uh, that's not on my no. list. But I'll, I'll take them, you know, I'll take them out. I'll, I'll do fun things with them. And, you know, I just want to be, want to be with the kids as much as I can. Yeah. Amy's 17 and... To be honest, that time has disappeared really quickly yeah. and I feel I haven't been there for her enough. Um, and within 12 months, she's going, to be, she's going to be away at college and that's going to be a tough one to take. And how is life in the States compared to life over here? I don't know how much time you spend over here because you've got a place you know, near, not too yep. far from Woburn, but how much time do you spend here? I saw your mould on your putting green when you came back. Yeah, it was, it was not in good shape, so we had, we had to get that fixed. How long um, was that away from? Just a few months and it come back? And it's no, gone. last year it was starting to look pretty sad. It's an artificial green mm. and it needed some uh, TLC, so uh, this year was the right year to get that done. I get about 10, 11 weeks from when I first come back to when we leave the UK, but in that time I'm obviously flying back for US Open, coming back here, playing a number of tournaments and then going to Memphis and coming back for a week. So I probably only get four weeks off of actual weeks weeks where I'm not competing, but that's not weeks off because I'm still practising. What do you like about the States or miss about the UK? I miss uh, Woburn's bacon and sausage sandwiches. Mm. We haven't that's been offered a, any, so... Well, I'm actually I'm, I'm quite hungry right now. Um, yeah, it's a shame. The food's awesome here. Yeah. Absolutely awesome. So... I miss friends and family, and I miss you know the fact of just jumping in your car, driving, driving to Woburn, and having a you know having a breakfast or having lunch or late afternoon tea, and just being home. I mean, it's, it's great playing golf in a in a jumper. Hmm. It's something pretty. It's pretty nice. Not sweating when you're practicing is also quite nice. Yeah, the simple things. Right. Okay, we're going to let you go and get a bacon and egg, uh, bacon sausage. It was sandwich, was it? Sorry, right, it's too late. Too late in the day for that. Really? I oh, know you can have that at any time. Um, but before we let you go, we've got a Hilton quick nine okay. questions. So we've got nine quick answer questions for you to wrap things up. So uh, quick answers. Who would be in your dream four ball? Uh, my dad, Luke, and Joshua. Perfect. Uh, daughter was very angry at that. Best city you have visited? Uh, Tokyo. Tokyo. Uh, Favourite Ryder Cup memory? We've sort of covered that, so I presume it's... Medina. Medina, says the postman. What's the first thing in your suitcase when you go on holiday? Clothes. My, my golf outfits. Golf outfits, right. Okay, Orlando... Oh, when or... I go on holiday? Yeah, on holiday, yeah. Ooh, oh, sorry. You're not sitting uh, on the beach in your sorry, sweater. Um, knitwear. First thing in the case, my budgie smugglers. <laughs> okay, there is another uh, memory that I'll have to repress. Image gone. Uh, Orlando or Milton Keynes? 
Uh, Milton Keynes. Okay, quite specific. A lot of roundabouts there. Uh, Favourite club in the bag? All of them. Okay. Such a boring answer. Lies. Sorry. Uh, one place on your bucket list. One place that you'd like to go. No, I wouldn't. There's no. There's no one bucket list. I, I just want to be with the kids. You've travelled enough, right? Okay. If you could own one car, what would it be? This is the eighth hole. Uh, two hundred and fifty GTO. That's never going to happen. It's too expensive. Too expensive. Come on now. Uh, and I don't have a spare seventy million lying around. Oh right. Okay. I didn't realise it cost. It's that too much. expensive. Okay. Uh, XR two for me. Uh, win a major or Arsenal win the Champions League. Come on. I know the answer to that. That's not a question. That's just exactly. That's awful. Yeah. Okay. Win. Uh, okay. Major. Win a major or Arsenal win seven Champions Leagues well, in a row. I've got the opportunity to win a major, yeah. and unfortunately, Arsenal haven't got the opportunity to win. The Champions League, because okay. we're not good enough. Okay. We're, we're, I mean, we could stray into the dangerous territory of talking about Arsenal ad nauseum. Let's but not do that. I think we're going to draw it uh, to a close there. So, Ian Poulter, at the home of Ian Poulter, here we are at Woburn. Thank you very much for joining us on Life on Tour. Very welcome. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to the Life on Tour podcast, presented by Hilton. You can get in touch via Twitter and Instagram, at European Tour, using the hashtag Life on Tour, or on Facebook. Subscribe now, and if you enjoyed the show, feel free to rate and review us on iTunes and Apple Podcasts.